figure out what the customer wants. And like customer-oriented design is going to win out long-term. And so I would say get close to the customer, stay close to the customer, give the customer what they want, what they need, make sure you're delivering value, and make sure what you're doing is hard to do. Hey everybody, I'm Jared Morgan and welcome to the Slow Smoked Business Podcast. Now today we're joined by Benjamin Cobb. This is a really special episode for me. Benjamin is a partner at Eastside Partners, a venture capital firm out of Huntsville, Alabama, and he was actually the pivotal early investor in ProctorU, his firm Eastside Partners was, in our early stages. Now Benjamin sits on a couple of boards, he's an active investor in software enabled and tech companies, uh, he's got a lot of operating experience, which is kind of what we wanted to talk to him about today. But we also wanted to talk to him about what are the different types of institutional capital out there and what type of businesses should be going for which ones. We want to figure out the process that these organizations go through to evaluate their investments so that you can actually dial your business into the correct customer on the investment side. Hello, Benjamin. Good to have you here. Hey, Jared. Good to be here. I'm excited to have you on the show. I've been, you know, right when I started Slow Smoke Business, I thought in my mind, like, I can't wait to get Benjamin on the show. So for those that don't know, Benjamin and I uh, have had a lot of chances to work together in our career. Um, Benjamin was one of the first uh, people that started to believe in Proctor U in the early stages. Um, his organization, Eastside Partners, uh, was an early investor, the 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 uh, key investor in us early on, not just with money, but helped us um, operationally as well, sort of figure things out that, uh, that we needed. We, we were a lot of really young and ambitious guys that had a lot of, uh, a lot of desire to do things right, but but definitely did not have the experience to get that done. And so it was it was nice to have somebody that we could lean on. That kind of like leans into you know some questions I'm going to ask. But I first want to start like Benjamin, tell me a little bit about like what it is that you do every day. You're you're a venture capitalist, right? But it's not. I don't know if that's the right word to say. But like, what is what is your job exactly with Eastside? Sure. So uh, maybe stepping back, Eastside is a, a growth equity firm. So we raise capital in you know pooled investment vehicles. We raise a fund. They're called funds. We raise a fund probably every you know three to four years on average. Each of those funds, you know, we may invest a, in eight to ten different companies. A combination of minority and majority investments, primarily minority investments, and. Yeah, so our our deal teams are set up. We do software investing, tech enabled services, and then healthcare, kind of the three areas that you know our team focuses on. And then me within the firm, I focus primarily on software and tech enabled services. I've got two partners that focus almost exclusively on healthcare, and another one that's almost exclusively in software. And so I'm kind of in those two buckets. So you know, right now I'm on five private company boards, range in size from you know single digits, millions in revenue to north of 100 million dollars in revenue and kind of everything in between. And, you know, the typical spectrum of engagement with the business is, you know, depending on the stage of the business, depending on how built out the management team is, depending on the challenges in the business, we you know lock arms as partners with the team and help the business grow. So that could look like everything from 
you know, management recruiting for key open positions inside the business to working out specific, you know, organizational design problems, anything from product and engineering to sales and marketing and figuring out the go to market and what the sales infrastructure needs to look like and really everything in between. And so, you know, our typical investment horizon inside a business may be anywhere from, you know, three to six years. And, you know, we, we invest, come in, predominantly as minority partners. And eventually, you know, we're, we're working primarily because of the stage of the, the businesses that we're investing in, we're working primarily with founders. So we're partnering with founders who are operationally involved in the business and are ready to take their businesses to the next level and need outside capital and outside operational expertise to help them grow their business. And so, you know, we typically, like I said, if we're involved in a business for three, four, five, six years, you know, typically we'll find, you know, a, another partner for the business. And that next partner for the business, it may be another operating company that, you know, we categorize as a strategic that has, you know, relevant customers or products or services offered in the same or an adjacent market that may be a larger operating business that's going to a Acquire our business, or you know, the business may run a spectrum where it's outgrown either Eastside skill set or the skill set of the management team. And it's the time to bring in you know a partner in sort of middle market private equity that would be the next owner of the business to capitalize it to grow it for the next you know three, four, or five years. And so that's kind of what the fund does. And then for me personally, you know, I'm I'm on five boards right now. I'm probably more engaged in two of those five companies than the other three of those companies, but, you know, helping with a variety of issues. So we're out in the market with one business right now running, you know, an M&A process. We just closed an investment in another business in the last couple of weeks. You know, if I look across the portfolio, we've got active, you know, C-level searches, CTO search here, CFO search that's ongoing across the portfolio, really just blocking and tackling and dealing with a, a variety of operational issues inside the portfolio. So, so you've got five different boards that you sit on. And I'm always interested in how does somebody like that, how do you run your day? Like, how do you keep all of these balls in the air? You've got five different boards. You sit on our board at Measure Learning, uh, but you also sit on four other ones. And there's all sorts of things. You said you're going through C-level searches and you've got one out in a process. How do you keep all the balls in the air? I mean, I, I, the way I would think of it was is in terms of just customer-oriented design is, you know, our, our management teams are our customers. So I've got five CEOs that I support. And so part of it depends on just the relative prioritization of what the issues are that are being worked on. And so, you know, we're in, inside late stage in an M&A process as an example. And so that naturally is going to require more time and attention, in part because the economic stakes of it, but in part because the, it's moving fast, there's a timeline on it. There's a bunch of associated overlapping interests and it's maintaining alignment inside that process. And so, you know, those types of situations will you know, require more immediate time sensitive, you know, attention that's devoted to it. And so there's a little bit of relative prioritization, but I'd say that, you know, kind of categorize all of that as portfolio operations, you know, portfolio operations, it ebbs and flows, you know, week to week month to month or even quarter to quarter, just depending on, you know, if everything's going great, we got great management teams, there's not many issues going on, then there's bandwidth or capacity, you know, kind of in seasons, if you will, to focus attention in other places. So inside of our firm, the way I'd probably think about our business is there's really kind of three core functions. There's, you know, 
business development, which is you know finding new investment opportunities. And so we have a business development team and I'm involved and engaged there. And I spend a meaningful portion of my time evaluating investment opportunities and chasing opportunities to invest. So that's kind of one category of, of where I allocate time. The other category is, is portfolio operations, you know, what we talked about there, supporting our teams. And then the third category, you know, broadly speaking, would be sort of fund administration. That could be everything internal, that could be LP or investor reporting. And that also could be, you know, preparing for the next fund that we'll do and fundraising related activities that are associated with that. So that's kind of the three buckets. Um, I probably spend less time on the last bucket there and, you know, just personally spend more time on the business development side of things as well as the portfolio operations side of things. And really it just ebbs and flows. You know, there was, I spent quite a bit of time in the second quarter on, you know, investment execution because of an investment that we closed a few weeks ago that was pretty time consuming for a period of, you know, six or eight weeks. And so that required a fair amount of bandwidth and attention that probably distracted me from other things I, I could have or should have or would like to have been, you know, doing during that period of time. So a lot of the people uh, that listen to this show are new to entrepreneurship. And so I wanted to take an opportunity to hear from you, who taught me a lot about um, institutional investing. What are the different types of institutional capital out there? So if you're starting a business and I'm thinking, I'm looking at the way I'm setting this up, and at some point I'm going to need to bring in some outside capital, what are the different types of buckets that those things fall in and, and who is the right fit for what? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, there's a bunch of ways to segment the market. So for an institutional investor, so for a fund like us, you know, the investment criteria is largely going to be built around, you know, what are the sectors that you invest in? What stage of companies do you invest in? Stage specifically meaning, you know, revenue stage, you know, is the company pre-revenue? Is it post-revenue? You know, does it have a million dollars in annualized revenue? Does it have $2 million, $5 million? You know, so the sectors you invest in, the stage, the size or the, the amount of financing that you're going to raise, it's got to fit in line with the business model of the fund that you're talking to. You know, if you're if you're looking to raise a million dollar round and you're talking to a $500 million fund, there's just not going to be a fit there because I think you probably on average can kind of look at a fund's committed capital, divide that number by 10-ish, and that's probably a decent target kind of investment amount. And so, you know, so there's sectors, there's stage, there's size of the investment, and then there's the geography that the business is, is based in. And so, and I think for a lot of funds in the last couple of years with COVID, the geographic aperture has probably opened up a little bit because the labor market's been so tight the last few years. Everyone's working remote by definition, you know, at least you know, 2020 and, and into 2021. And then on top of that, you know, the labor market with it being as tight as it is, if I look across our portfolio and where hires are coming from, things have gravitated towards highest and best draft pick with a little bit of indifference in a lot of our businesses as to where that individual is located. But still, I think in most situations, especially for smaller funds and earlier stage investing, there is a oftentimes a regional focus. So I would have a good understanding if you're evaluating a potential partner, you know, before even approaching them, you know, understanding how you fit relative to, you know, for at least the institutional markets, the sectors they invest in, the stage of businesses, the check size they're trying to write, and then the geographies that they're looking to invest in. But all of that said, that's all in the institutional capital markets. And, you know, what I would say is like going to pre-revenue, even pre-seed stage, you know, there's the 
typical hierarchy of capital sources, like the, the cheapest source of capital uh, may or may not be the easiest source of capital in some regards, possibly is, but you know, the cheapest source of capital is most certainly going to be from your customers, revenue from your customers. And so, you know, e- easier said than done, a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. You know, beyond that, there's sort of, you know, personal, you know, financing, whether that's equity contribution or, I mean, many businesses that you see get off the ground, get off the ground with like, you know, shoestring and bubble gum and probably some credit card debt and some personally guaranteed debt. So, you know, personal contributions, then there's friends and family. Again, the dynamic with friends and family is easy to talk about depending on you know, someone's background, depending on the financial support network they have around them, that may not be an option for them. And so, you know, that's, so, but, but I, I think about all these different potential sources of capital before you get to raising outside third party equity financing. So when you get into the equity markets, you know, that's where kind of you move off of the more proximate sort of in some ways backyardish sources of capitals and into outside third party capital. And so you know, you've got angel investors, so high net worth individuals that are writing, you know, small checks into early stage businesses looking to make a big bet. And then, you know, it kind of is tailored from there into larger rounds of financing with institutional investors that, you know, in the angel markets, probably the important thing is, is you're talking to the principal, the person writing a check or making the investment is the owner of that capital. And as you transition into the institutional markets, you have people like ourselves who are managing third party capital and deploying it on their behalf. And so, the diligence requirements, the returns thresholds, everything is just heightened once you get into that market. So if we're talking about, you know, the audience here is, is probably pretty wide and varied, but if we're talking about, you know, largely, you know, pre-revenue, seed stage, concept stage businesses, then, you know, the institutional markets are a little bit distant from probably where those businesses are, with the exception that, you know, there's certain industries, so, you know, Software, <coughs> yeah, I mean, it, again, it depends on the business model and the type. Like if I contrast, if there's a, you know, a, a new software being built for a large end market, what we call a total addressable market that has, you know, the profile to it in terms of high gross margins, subscription-based revenue, the founder of that business has some unique insight into that market, whether they worked in product for another player in the space or they worked in sales and they've got a Rolodex of customers that can be early sandbox for client referral and testimonials. Like, you know, there's got to be something that's probably interesting and differentiated there that gives unique insight. But those are the types of opportunities that oftentimes you'll see position themselves for raising outside financing from an institutional investor at the pre-seed stage. If we were talking about somebody who was starting a more traditional services business that you know had a regional or local footprint somebody that wanted to start um, a janitorial services business or a dry cleaning business those are types of businesses that probably less likely to attract outside institutional capital and probably have to have a little bit of a different game plan in terms of how you would go about using you know third-party vendor financing for capital equipment and probably personal guarantees and maybe some friends and family or, or one or two high net worth individuals to fund that so a little bit of it depends on the business model and what the plan is for scaling the business and you know I just you know when you bring in outside partners into a business by definition you're aligning the interests of the business with 
whatever the outside partners, you know, vision and financial interests are in the business as well. And so in the institutional markets, you know, institutional investors, you'll have some quasi-institutional investors like family offices that sometimes can be uh, more opportunistic with respect to their holding periods and hold things for a longer period of time and not need to think about businesses in terms of, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? What what are we going to do with this business over five, six, seven years? But for most sources of institutional capital, you know, they're going to have a thesis and need to be aligned with, you know, the company on what that thesis is with respect to how is this business going to scale and as it scale, what is the goal for this business in terms of an eventual liquidity event, who are the likely future partners of that business, et cetera. So, but I would say at the pre-revenue stage, um, you know, it's probably hard to talk about, you know, how the capital markets are segmented without at least acknowledging you know, what's happening in the capital markets right now. I mean, extreme volatility in the public markets since Q4 of last year. We've had three Fed rate hikes this year, including, you know, last week was, or, you know, yeah, last week was the largest and, you know, since the early 90s. And so a lot of uncertainty in the public markets. And, you know, what's happened is, is like the public and the private markets, they move together, but the private markets always lag the public markets. And so, you know, there's just a stickiness, if you will, that exists in the private markets where in, in, you know, bull markets and up cycles, you've got this dynamic where there's a delta between where things are trading in the public markets versus the private markets and private markets lag. When the market turns though, and the public market marks the market, that same, same thing happens in reverse. And so what's happened in the private markets right now is valuation expectations are actually in excess in the private markets of where things have marked to in the, in the public markets. And so that's going to take time to get caught up. It's going to take a few quarters for those expectations to normalize in the private markets. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing that within our companies that are raising additional rounds of financing. We're seeing that with investment opportunities that we're looking at. I mean, if, uh, we'll, the, the postmortem from Q2 as we get through it and get into Q3, I mean, most people that you talk with, um, the capital markets have really slowed down. Uh, the institutional private capital markets have really slowed down in the second quarter. And I expect that to continue in the third quarter. And that's going to result in a slowdown in M&A. It's going to result in, you know, just more investment committees and institutional investors giving guidance to general partners to tap the brakes, let things normalize, let valuation expectations settle, figure out what the Fed's going to do remainder of the year, figure out what's going to happen in the labor markets. And so all of those things trickle down market to our little section, relatively small section of the capital markets, writing, you know, five to $25 million checks. And, and it even cascades further down market. And so I think the result is, is that you know, there's a period of time for early stage companies, less than a million in revenue, you know, down to, you know, kind of seed, pre-seed, pre-revenue businesses, that there was this, you know, a huge late in this market cycle, there's been a, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but the amount of committed capital that's been raised in venture as an asset class, specifically for, you know, pre-series A, so seed and pre-seed investing, so doing pre-revenue investing, you know, there was probably no better time. I've been in the venture business since 09, and there's been no better time, you know, in my career than the last three or four years, if you were an early stage entrepreneur to raise you know, institutional capital. And it, it feels like, you know, that phase has sort of come to an end here in the first, you know, six months of 2022. And and what the timeline looks like for that to come back, there will still be people putting capital work. Lots of funds have been raised. The dynamic of those funds model is, is they have the dry powder, they've got to find a home for it and figure out a place to put it. What will end up happening though, is a lot of funds will have more reserves for their existing companies. So capital they had allocated to do new investing 
with. They're now looking at their existing companies that are still pretty early stage that are not yet profitable. And they're saying, hey, we're not going to own these businesses for only four years. We may have to own these businesses for six plus years. So capital that we would have used to make a new investment, we're going to have to set aside and reserve for following on in our existing portfolio. So the effect of that at scale is you've got the same number of funds. You know, there's probably going to be fewer funds that are raised in the back half of this year, but for the existing funds, um, they're going to have fewer portfolio companies per fund. And it just means fewer companies ultimately end up getting funded in the market. So the terms are going to become more investor friendly as to company friendly. And the capital markets are just tightening up right now. So, you know, especially Q2, there's just so much uncertainty right now. It, it, it'd be tough to be on the issuer side or on the company side seeking to raise a round of financing. You know, that said, there's still companies that are closing rounds right now. It's just the volume. I think we'll see the data as we get into Q2 and Q3. It's, it's dropping off pretty significantly. So not to discuss Courage, but I think probably what it points towards is for early stage companies, the institutional markets um, are going to be less attractive over the next four quarters than they have been, you know, the last four to eight quarters. And so if you know that going in, then it kind of probably sets a little bit of how you prioritize where you spend your time in terms of building relationships. If, it, if you are building relationships in the institutional markets, you're going to be much more you know, tailored in your approach and narrowing your focus in terms of checking all the boxes in terms of investment criteria for the funds that you're speaking with. And then additionally, I think it's going to cause some people that were probably on the margin of, am I in the institutional markets? Am I in the angel markets? To move more directly into the angel markets. And I think for people that were stretching to get into the angel markets, it's going to cause them to look towards internal funding or debt or customers for sources. So I mean, it just kind of all rolls downhill. So, but I just, I don't know, I wanted to bring that up because the, the institutional markets are, are in a very unique spot that you know, ha- hasn't existed in, you know, 13 plus years. One of the things you had said earlier was the easiest way to find capital is to go to your customers and close some deals and sell and try to, you know, keep your expenses low. Um, that's, Obviously, like you said, it's easier said than done, but that's in today's market. Sounds like I'm hearing you say, like, if that is on the table, you probably should go that route first before you start testing the waters in the capital markets. I think I think I said the cheapest source it would be through customers, maybe not the easiest. I think it probably probably depends on on the business model and what the customer dynamics are, the capital requirements to build out some sort of MVP. I mean, I've seen in capital constrained environments like I've seen a bunch of interesting businesses get built, products companies, software businesses get built out of services or consulting businesses, as an example. And so, yeah, I think it probably depends on what the business model is, the end market, your customer, how you approach that market. But I'd say certainly the the cheapest source of capital is gonna be from customers. I think in this market, if the third party outside capital markets are more difficult to access, it's not saying it's insurmountable. If they're, if they're in general gonna be more difficult than they were six months ago, then I think the return on time is probably gonna be higher looking at alternative sources than third party you know, institutional capital, or even possibly the angel markets. Because I think a lot of people are trying to make sense of the volatility in the public markets right now and kind of sitting on their hand for a few quarters. And so, you know, given that, you know, looking at the variety of different sources of capital, I think that, you know, it depends on probably the, like I said, the business model. The next piece would be the founder type. And like, I don't know, I, I probably come from the school of thought. I, I'm not 
um, technical. I don't have a background in computer science or software engineering. And so, you know, and one of my, you know, mentors, somebody, you know, that you know well, Jared, Paul Reeves, like he has this saying that, you know, the, the rising tide covers all stumps. And so, you know, it's go, go out and find some revenue and use the revenue to fix whatever the problems are to a certain extent. And that's not a, you know, advocacy for like, let's go sell some vaporware and figure out how to implement it. But if that's one end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum is, is, you know, I need to build product. I need to like perfect the product before I can push it out into the market. And the right answer is likely, you know, somewhere in between. And so what I would say is, is in a market where, you know, outside capital is going to be more difficult to access or it's going to be more expensive, it probably just puts a little bit more pressure on looking at creative financing solutions that may include, you know, sandbox type deals. I mean, I, I've got something I'm, I'm involved with right now where, you know, the the goal here in the first, you know, the, the next, you know, call it four quarters is really going to be, you know, covering our hard costs and getting new customers on a new product. And so we're going to be, you know, commercially discounting the software probably 75 plus percent over the next four quarters, primarily to get you know, half a dozen to a dozen customers on the platform because they're going to inform our product development roadmap for this new product. And at the same time, they're going to be able to serve as reference clients for us. So we'll do a lot better job getting the product right uh, with their guidance and assistance. We'll also understand from them how we should map out the sales process to take this to market. And then importantly, you know, they're going to serve as reference clients for us as we try to go from, you know, 10 customers to a couple hundred customers that are on, you know, this new platform. And that 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 in market itself is so the total addressable market's large, but the number of buying entities in that market is sufficiently small and fairly incestuous in terms of relationship overlap that, you know, it's almost priceless what those first five or 10 or 15 customers are going to be worth to us because they're going to inform the product strategy. But they're also, you know, we're kind of putting ourselves in a position to get lucky if we can execute because, you know, referrals will happen naturally in that end market just based on how the market is constructed. I want to say something. You just said something that was really important. That whole, I don't want people to miss that. So it is really common for people that are starting out that don't have any customers to think that the only option that they have is to kind of go the vaporware route. And that's not the only option you have. So, I mean, I want to, I want to really hammer home what you just said. It's about engaging with early adopters, potential early adopters, being honest with them about where you are and then agreeing to build them something and say and coming to an agreement with them saying, if I build you this, you guys are agreeing to use it. Or if I do X, you're agreeing to do Y. And um, there are there are always customers that are open to engaging in that way. And that is how you can get through the whole, well, you know, the chicken or the egg thing. I don't have any capital uh, and I can't build a product and I can't get customers if I don't have the product. There's, there's almost always a way, particularly in tech, there's almost always a way to get someone to agree that if you build this, I will buy it. And that's how you get your first couple of customers. And your first couple of customers are the thing that's going to shape your whole business, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wish you asked me a question earlier around how am I allocating my time? If I had it redacted, I'd pull up a screen share right now and show it to you. Like yesterday morning, I spent a couple hours with the CEO going through, you know, basically a term sheet for this new platform that we're rolling out. And essentially it's, you know, hey, we're going to discount this thing probably 75%. But in exchange for that, here's the term sheet or the, the schedule A to, you know, the contract that basically outlines why we're giving you a discount, all the things that we need for you in terms of number of client references per year, um, sales and marketing collateral contributions, just like all the reasons that, you know, and, and effectively what we're 
looking to do there is really just offset our third third party, you know, direct costs. We've got some data acquisition costs, we've got some integration. And so offsetting our third party hard costs and like, we're not going to make any margin on those deals. Uh, we'll, and so ultimately we'll end up kind of losing money after we allocate kind of overhead to it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it make, it's the right decision to make for the business to be able to sort of, I don't know, we, we kind of internally have all these little sayings and like, you, you crawl before you walk and you walk before you run and we're, we're at the crawl phase right now. So we, we, we need some partners to help us learn to walk. And one of the things I told I had in my mind before this episode was I wanted to I wanted to do this math because in getting a chance to interact with you over the years, like I've learned a little bit about the kinds of things that you and people in your position have to deal with in order to operate. So walk me through the math on how many companies you invest in a year. I want to talk about the funnel, right? So you invest in X number of companies a year, but in order to get those X number of companies, how many companies do you evaluate and whittle down into that number? This probably also informs kind of how people invert it and think about if you're going to raise institutional capital, how you approach sort of the institutional capital markets. And so, you know, last year, if I pulled out, you know, Salesforce, I don't know these numbers, but I probably looked at 300 to 350 deals and I, I made one investment last year. And so, um, you know, and so now that said, like the the three fifty probably turns into a hundred pretty quickly, right? Because there's a cursory review, and I didn't even necessarily spend more than thirty or forty five minutes on you know a majority of those three hundred and fifty. And so, but then there's a you know the the funnel tailors, and there's a bunch of different stages in terms of you know evaluation. We've got internal processes, an intro call, product demo, internal partners meeting, figure out to progress next step diligence request list, figure out if we're in the same zip code in terms of like round of financing, what that might look like. So, I mean, there's just a tailored process, but I mean, I'd say out of 350, you know, opportunities last year, there was probably, you know, 15 to 25 really interesting businesses. And then probably five that checked a lot of boxes that, you know, I probably could have or should have or wanted to invest in. And we ended up investing in one and, you know, the dynamics that give rise to not investing in something, you know, maybe competitive that maybe we lose out on investment opportunity, you know, based on them deciding to raise capital from someone else. It, there's just a variety of different sources that could cause that. But, you know, that said, I think that the single biggest filter to go from whatever, 350 to 100 investment opportunities, the 250 that like, you know, sort of early on could be filtered out or probably filtered out for one of two reasons. Either A, they didn't check the box in terms of just like, you just kind of think of it as a strike zone. We have a strike zone for the types of things we invest in. They were just outside the strike zone. That's probably the number one most common one. And then the second one would be, you know, the way you can think about a lot of funds, and it depends on, you know, in, in the audience here being probably early to growth stage businesses. And so the, the institutional markets that those types of founders and entrepreneurs would approach to raise capital, you know, regional funds like ourselves. I mean, we've got two active funds right now, a 2015 and a 2019 fund, you know, 150-ish in committed capital. And so we're writing relatively small checks. And so the deals, I say relatively small, probably five on the low end to, you know, close to $22 million round last year, close to 15 or 16 million dollar round a couple weeks ago, but those are yeah, relative yeah. numbers. I think there's people and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, that's it depends yeah, on where yeah, you're at in the yeah, scale. Absolutely. Of things. I, say, I say relatively small because, you know, I, I can contrast that with like the national growth equity funds that are, you know, multi-billion dollar funds that are writing, you know, a hundred to $400 million checks. And that's not, that's not the world we operate in. So in these, you know, in the section of the capital markets that we operate in, the, the alternatives to raising financing, uh, 
there's not as many investors that are writing as small of checks at us. So again, it's all kind of relative. A lot of the, you know, institutionally focused, growth oriented, operationally biased investors end up navigating up market over time and raising bigger funds and writing a lot bigger checks. And so I think of ourselves as like, you know, relatively small. But so the relatively small funds like ourselves, you can kind of think of our investor base as being curated for deal flow. So like if, if I could, you know, wave a magic wand, our investor base would be, you know, and, and, it, and it's shaped this way over time over the last few funds, would be disproportionately comprised of investors who see investment opportunities, know an investment opportunity looks like a good, a compelling opportunity and is referring them to us. So we kind of set up a cooperative, if you will, of people that are active participants in the capital market. So we've got probably 30, uh, 25 to 35 current and former technology CEOs. And so they sit on boards, they're actively making investments, they've got natural relationship networks. And so those are hubs of activity where when things come in from them that are investment opportunities, there's already been sort of a curation and a filtering function. And so when I think about like where I disproportionately allocate time, it's things that are being referred in through, you know, people whose, you know, opinions I trust, who know what investment opportunities look like. And so that said, if I contrast that with the other extreme, which would be like a complete cold call or inbound, something randomly that shows up in an inbox, like those, you know, just don't get really looked at. They don't get a lot of time spent on them because if someone is you know, reaching out cold, they probably get access to some sort of like, you know, list and contact information on some sort of private capital markets list. And I got an email the same way that like 5,000 other people got an email. And so, you know, people just aren't going to spend time naturally on something like that. So I'd say that, you know, the, the referral source, how you get introduced to someone, you know, and it's, it's not just for raising capital, it's everything. If you're recruiting someone to come work for you, how you got to that person is going to be crazy critical or how that person got to you is going to be critical for understanding and assessing the caliber of talent of that other individual. You're both going to do that in part based on how you got connected with someone. And so, and it's no different in the capital markets either. So I, I thought that was such an interesting thing to understand because when people are thinking about approaching investors, it's important to understand just the, the volume of things that you guys are going to have to look at. Now, going from 300 to one investment, 350 to one investment, is that is that typical or is that like super high Benjamin Cobb quality filters that are on that that get to get that number so low so quick? I mean, no, I, I, mean I, I would say um, and then that 350, you know, that 350 number is it, it's a real number, but it's probably overstated because there was a lot of stuff in there that just wasn't a fit. Right. And so let's let's assume that the stuff that's really a fit that checks the boxes in terms of sector and stage and size around geography. Let's say there's 100 within that still 100 to one like. It sounds daunting. Like if, if you went to a middle market private equity where, you know, we're small, our management company, we have seven people, right? And so if you go to a middle market private equity where you've got multiple funds that are, you know, billion, $2 billion funds, you may have dozens of investment professionals. They've got business development teams that are set up in call shops where you've got, you know, uh, a, a team of rock stars, you know, women and men who've graduated from top tier schools that, you know, are, you know, all day dialing for dollars to a certain extent. Marketing automation outreach, they've got third party data sources that are curating all sorts of information around like open job requisitions, hiring rates, like they're crunching the market to actually figure out what companies are growing and what that growth rate looks like. And they're outbound and relentless. And so in that world, 
I wouldn't even know what the conversion ratios would look like. But they, in middle market private equity, you know, they're probably looking at five times more investment opportunities for every investment that they're making relative to, to, to what I am. Let's talk about people for a second, because one of the things that I'll never forget. So when uh, a young Benjamin Cobb was evaluating a young Jared Morgan early on in the career to make our, to make your Series A investment, once you guys had sort of figured out you were going to move forward, one of the first things that you put me and a couple of other other key players through was a personality test, right? So I, I know I've heard you talk about this before. What are you looking for? What personality traits are you looking for in an entrepreneur that you can get behind and believe in? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. And I think you could ask this to 10 other active principles in the capital markets and you'll get 10 other you know answers and they're all based on unique approaches. So I'd say that there's a, a probably a combination of like at the individual level, the partners in our firm, I'd say there's a generally high level of interest in human psychology. And so I think we're just all kind of fascinated by it personally and, and academically as well. And then also learning from mistakes that we've made in the past so as to, you know, we always say kind of jokingly, like we're gonna make new and exciting mistakes, but hopefully not repeat the same mistakes that, that we made previously. And so <clears throat> I think probably something that's popularized this in the last couple of years is Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and talking about, you know, how they dealt with psychometric profiles inside of Bridgewater for hiring, and also for operating the business to make sure that they understood the psychometric profile of all their employees so that they put them in job positions or roles that if you list the functional tasks of those roles, that their psychometric profile is going to fit so that you're designing their opportunities for something they're going to be successful at, as opposed to, you know, don't ask uh, an introvert to be in an outbound business development sales role. Like that doesn't make sense. They're going to not thrive. They're going to hate life. They're going to hate their job, et cetera. And so it's just like designing opportunities around who the person is or, or, or inversely, you know, hiring someone that fits the right psychometric profile for the position or the role that you need filled inside of an organization. And so there's a ton of different, you know, disc surveys, Myers-Briggs, all these are, you know, some flavor of, I think the mnemonic is canoe or ocean. So openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, um, uh, extra, I missed one open. Only you would have this memorized by the way. <laughs> We, we use it all the time. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Those are the big five. And all these personality profile tests, like basically are some terminology to pattern, like where are you at on a spectrum of those five dimensions and how does it fit together to identify who you are? And so we do psychometric profiles, you know, on our management teams of the companies that we invest in. We, everybody inside of our firm, has done one on ourselves. Everybody within our firm knows each other's psychometric profiles. We share all that information because there's there's nothing normative to it. It just kind of is what it is and you are who you are. And so it's kind of working around those dynamics. But um, I think it's fast, fascinating. And, and you see um, certain functional roles. Oftentimes you'll see different uh, people thrive or you'll see a pattern of people with certain psychometric profiles in certain functional roles in an org chart. And you'll see a pattern of situations where people thrive versus don't thrive. I mean, you know, I, it, there's there's so many examples. I mean, you can take in engineering as an example. You know, you've got, I don't know, to create sort of an artificial contrast, you've got, you know, some CTOs that are not product and market focused and, you know, probably introverts don't want to be in the market, don't want to be in front of the customer. They're not going to be pulled in for like technical objection handling inside of a sales process. But that same 
person oftentimes has like a very compliant personality type, extremely technically competent and wants to be inward focused, focused in terms of like managing agile teams. And so that would inform based on that personality profile, how you build up out product marketing, how you build out the marketing team, how you would, you know, staff technical issues inside of sales support. I mean, there's just, and so it depends on what the personality profile is. Don't take that CEO and ask them to take the role of someone who, by contrast, you may have someone that's like higher extroversion, higher agreeableness, very low uh, uh, conscientiousness, so low preparedness, but is phenomenal on the product side and in front of the customer. But you actually wouldn't want that person probably writing any code for you or necessarily even managing like a tight DevOps team. Like you're going to need to bring in more compliant process oriented resources around that CTO. And a lot of that you can figure out through a psychometric profile and through spending just a little bit of time. And like that same analog, you could do the same thing for at the CFO role, it probably depends on the business model, but do you have like an operationally excellent accountant, but someone who's not strong in corporate finance or vice versa? And what's the stage of the business? If you bring in somebody from a $100 million revenue company that's used to having, you know, a controller and a VP of finance and an AP clerk and, you know, all kinds of financial infrastructure and you drop them in a $5 million revenue company where there's nothing around them, they're not going to be successful because they don't have the personality type, the wiring, the relevant experience. And then the same kind of in, in, in vice versa. So, I, and you could run through an org chart and go through all these things. But I don't know, we've, we've, um, we've, we've, we've had a lot of fun with it. But I think in terms of general patterns, um, you know, there's no personality profile that's in, any better than the other. I mean, they're all just unique and different. I think a common thing we see across founders that we've backed over time, and this is like, you know, pretty broad brush strokes and every situation is different. But typically we've, you know, it's a little bit of a classic sort of high agreeableness, moderate, you know, conscientiousness. You'd love to see maybe higher conscientiousness, but oftentimes moderate conscientiousness. Um, you know, relatively low levels of neuroticism. Um, and most of the time, I'd say, you know, founder CEOs that are that are extroverted, um, and then, you know, always want to see high openness just because it, you know, it, it leans into, you know, we've made a ton of mistakes. And so we'd like to just take that history of making we've across six funds invested in 65 to 70 different businesses. And so we have made a ton of mistakes. And I say that uh, humbly, but credibly, too, like we have screwed up a lot of things. And so given that. I think a lot of times it's about building a relationship with someone that we've got to maintain high openness individually inside our firm and as an institution to be lifelong learners. And if you've got a partner in a business that has that same high openness, you can learn from one another. And it's a two way street. Both parties are coachable. Both parties are teachable. And so where you end up running in a situation is probably a combination of low openness and low agreeableness. And so probably those two things together. Um, you know, at the CEO level, sometimes can create, you know, sort of some red flags. But again, we, we kind of are, we all are who, who we are. So. All right. So now the hard hitting question, right? You ready? Hard hitting. You ready? It's like, this hasn't been hard enough. All right. Ready? <laughs> Favorite investment you've been, you've made. Favorite investment. That's an, that's an easy one, Jared. I don't think you know the answer to that one. If you don't, I'm putting it on a T. If you don't, my my self-esteem will never recover. Yeah, so it goes back to 2013. We uh, we met a, a, a small little startup uh, in Hoover, Alabama, called Proctor U, and uh, you know it's been a it's been a heck of heck of a ride, and, and we're still on this journey together, Jared. So I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll, stop talking. It's good enough. <laughs> it's good enough. <laughs> That's good. So, all right. Last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, 
if you were talking to somebody and you do talk to these people a lot, but if you were talking to somebody who was just starting out, they had a business they had, or they had a prototype uh, and they said, what what do I need to do to make sure like what's the one thing that I can focus on to make sure that I'm successful? Not necessarily successful raising money, but successful. I build a business that sustains, that can grow. And it's not like a little flash in the pan or a cute, you know, Excel spreadsheet that looks like it's going to grow like it's an actual it has legs. What do you tell that person is the thing they should focus on? It's kind of common and in, 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 in you hear this a lot, but it's sincere is customer delight, making sure that you understand what the customer wants and designing your product or service around what the customer actually wants, solving their problem and making sure that you're solving it based on what they've demonstrated to you their needs are and their key purchasing criteria is not based on something that's a narrative that we've fallen in love with in our own mind. And I mean, I I think taking a step back from that as an investor, I mean, typically you're really underwriting. There's a whole broad set of all the departmental underwriting with respect to, you know, leadership, sales, operation, finance, you know, administration. Uh, there's just so many pieces to a business marketing that you're going to look at. But ultimately, if you step back from it, like, you know, especially at early stage, early to growth stage investing, probably the two fundamental things are, you know, is this does this have high value to the customers and is it hard to do? And if you've got a moat around what you're doing and it delivers a lot of value to your customer, like then you've solved for product market fit. You solved, you've got, you know, you, you probably, you've got product acceptance. You may or may not have pricing acceptance depending on the stage of the business. And if you're asking an investor to come in and not take risk around product acceptance, maybe take some risk around pricing acceptance, but the really only risk that they're taking is execution risk with respect to like business model acceptance because based on product and pricing acceptance, is there a question around like, what does your margin profile look like? What does your customer acquisition cost to sell it look like? Build out client services, build infrastructure. If that's the piece that you're asking a new investor to take risk around, you substantially de-risk the investment. But I would think of it in terms of like, I don't know, and Apple, probably better than any brand or company in the world, has figured this out 15 years ago before, 20 years ago, before any of us even understood this, which is figure out what the customer wants. And like customer-oriented design is going to win out long-term. And so I would say get close to the customer, stay close to the customer, give the customer what they want, what they need, make sure you're delivering value, and make sure what you're doing is hard to do. And if you solve for, you know, really just kind of those two things, and again, much easier said than done, but you know, the, the rest of the stuff kind of works itself out. Yeah, I mean it's simple, but it's hard, right? That's the key. It's not it's not a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to do, and you know, finding a way forward. I, I think by listening to people, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. Was it isn't always just about when you're finding a capital partner or somebody to invest in your business. It isn't always just about the money, and it isn't always just about the terms that you get either. It's also about are you aligned with the people? You guys on the same page? You're trying to accomplish the same thing, and can you learn from these people? Can they bring somebody to the table um, that allows you to kind of build on and, and better who you are. It's like you talked about high openness. That means being open to, you know what, I probably don't have the answers uh, here. I don't have them all. Here's what I think. And here's how I'm going to kind of figure out whether that's right. To me, the most intelligent people I've ever had an opportunity to interact with always have that kind of a mindset of being sort of comfortable with the fact that they don't have the right answer, uh, but but confident that they can navigate through a process to find the best answer. You know what I mean? It certainly resonates with the process that we've been through in the years. 
Yeah, it's just, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking as you were talking, which is, I mean, it, it lays the bedrock for trust in a relationship. And, you know, I, I don't think either of us going back to 2013 envision, you know, the, the 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 ups and downs, especially going back to 2015, 16, 17, you know, in, in, in our business, you know, that we'd been through. And so, um, I mean, it, it takes high openness and it takes a commitment to building lifelong relationships and I don't know, problem solving because I don't know, every no business is up into the right. There's, there's a lot of drama in every business. And if you've got good people in your corner and good partners that you can work with, you can figure those things out. Absolutely. Benjamin Cobb, it's been such a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for joining us and I hope we can have you back soon. Thanks, Jared. Happy to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Smoke Business Podcast. Now, if you like this episode, make sure you hit subscribe uh, and leave us a review as well. That'd be really helpful. You can also find us on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram. Just search for Slow Smoke Business. We'd love to hear from you.